Acts 6, 8 to 8, 3. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before we lived in Haran, <clears throat> and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. After they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his affliction and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for some of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born. He was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words, in his words and deeds. When he was forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? 
But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire and a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And he drew near to look, and there came a voice from the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen in the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them, and now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation of the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai with their fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifice to the idol and rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the books of the prophets. Did you bring me to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of wilderness, so the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who had built the house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. 
And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This is the word of the Lord. May he write his eternal truths on our hearts for his glory and for the building of his church. Let's pray together. Almighty God, as we approach this passage of Scripture, we pray that you would help us, Lord, to see Christ and to glorify Christ as we see the example of our brother Stephen who gave up his life willingly in the process of bearing testimony for Jesus Christ. And we praise you, Lord, that he bore testimony of Christ not just in word but also in deed. We praise you, Lord, as we see a reflection of, of what happened to Christ also happened to him. And as he reflected Christ also in his response, and, and we know that he did not do this in and of his own strength, but he did this through the power of the Holy Spirit so that even as he became the first martyr of the church, he was not just a, a witness in life, but he's also a witness in his death. Lord, help us, help all of us, Lord, to look to Christ as he looked to Christ and to draw strength from Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit so that we too might be motivated to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, that we would seek your glory, Lord Jesus Christ, above all things, even above our very lives. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. The church is under assault. We see that every week as we pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters. We're witnessing the spread of the infection in our own culture that will almost certainly result in an epidemic of persecution against the church in our culture unless the Lord Jesus brings revival or returns. But this is nothing new. For much of the church's history, persecution has been the norm and has been ever since the beginning. As Martin Lloyd-Jones said in his commentary on Acts 6, the church has had to fight for her life from the very beginning. We've seen how the apostles were arrested and thrown into prison, how they were threatened and how they were commanded to stop preaching. From the moment it was born, the church has faced a world that has done everything it could to exterminate Christianity. But as we've already seen in Acts, the world, although it has done everything it could, it could not quench, it could not extinguish the light of the gospel. As we're going to continue to see, persecution often produces the opposite effect. Rather than exterminate the church, persecution frequently causes the church to grow, to, to expand in, in depth and in breadth. We've seen that in the persecution that was faced by the apostles, and we'll, we'll see that in the persecution that was faced by Stephen, the first Christian martyr, as he witnesses to Christ in word and deed. And his martyrdom to Christ will be his greatest witness for Christ. Stephen, who we were introduced to last week, was one of the seven charged with ministering practically to the Hellenist widows. Stephen and Philip, who we'll focus on in the latter half of, of chapter 8, were, were two of the seven. 
And they really serve as, as bridge figures who are really representative of the ministry of those, those seven men who were called by God to witness, or so rather to, to minister to the others. And as we see, they were, they were called to do this so that they, the apostles could focus on the ministry of the word and prayer. But as we see, these men, they are themselves also powerfully ministering in the word of God. The witness of Christ is about to move out from Jerusalem into Judea and into Samaria. And it says it's a direct result of this persecution. One of the key figures that we're going to see in this persecution, Saul of Tarsus, will be converted by the Lord Jesus Christ and will become the Apostle Paul, one of the most influential men in the growth of the church. And it's as a direct result of Stephen's martyrdom. Through the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul goes from the persecution of Jesus Christ to the proclamation of Jesus Christ. And it's very clearly as a result of the testimony of Jesus Christ that was on the lips of Stephen, who Paul had a hand in killing. The early church father, Tertullian, once said, The oftener we are mown down by you, the more in number we grow. The blood of Christians is seed. This is often paraphrased. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The seed of Stephen's blood will grow and will bring an almost immediate harvest. This passage, as I mentioned earlier, goes from, from Acts chapter 6, verse 8, all the way down to chapter 8, verse 3. This is really one passage. It really belongs together. And I ambitiously planned to preach this as one sermon. However, as many of you are probably thankful, given the temperature in here, cooler heads prevailed, pun intended. I decided I'm going to do this over, over three sermons. Um, I'm, I'm, I was amazed at this, but Martin Lloyd-Jones preached 38 sermons on this one passage. Now, there, there's only one Martin Lloyd-Jones, and I'm not him. And when he, he, he did this, he did, I think, 20-something chapters just on, on John 3. And he doesn't repeat himself. I'll probably repeat myself in this one sermon. But again, I'm going to try to preach this in, in this passage in three sermons. So today we'll see the charges against Stephen in Acts chapter 6, verses 8 to 15, where Stephen is arrested, and we'll see the two accusations made against him uh, of speaking against the temple and of speaking against the law. So we'll see, we'll see what, what that means and, and, how we res and, and, and why. Next week, Lord willing, we'll see the testimony of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, verses 1 to 53. So it's, it's, this is by far the, the longest recorded speech in the book of Acts. And remember, Acts is, is full of speeches. There's 20-some speeches in Acts, and, and this one is, is by far the longest, really, really showing the importance of, of what is, is being said here. And we'll see that, that in, in, this, in, this, in this testimony, Stephen is not defending himself, but is proclaiming that God's presence is not limited to the temple, that God is with his people wherever they are, Furthermore, we'll see that he's leveling counter charges against his accusers, that it is not he who is against God, but they who are against God. And finally, Lord willing, 
In two weeks, we'll see the sentence against Stephen carried out from Acts chapter 7, 54 to 8, 3, as he bears witness for Christ, as he is killed for Christ, as he is welcomed into Christ's presence. And all the way through, we're going to see that, that Stephen is a witness for Christ. Again, not just his words, but also in his actions. And in the, the charges, and in his, in, his, in his testimony, and in his death, Stephen is walking a parallel path to that of Jesus Christ. And he responds in a way that also reflected the way that Jesus Christ responded. Stephen, Luke tells us, was full of grace and power. Add this to what Luke has already told us about Stephen in in verse 5, that Stephen was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And these four characteristics show us not just Luke's assessment of Stephen, but God's assessment of Stephen. So let's just quickly walk through these four characteristics. Again, here in in verse 8, he was full of grace. Now, although this this being full of grace could refer to to the the redeeming grace of God upon him, very likely in this context, it refers to to him being gracious and wisdom, sorry, gracious and winsome in in the way that he he responds. Second, he he was full of power. Now Luke adds that he was, he was doing signs and wonders among the people. And so, so we can see that in this and in his, in his ministry of proclamation, that he's reflecting the ministry of the apostles. It's, it's not just the apostles who are the ones doing signs and wonders and proclaiming Christ. So we've, we've reached now a, a, new, a new phase in the ministry of the church in the book of Acts. We're going to see that from Philip as well. So they and Luke's testimonies of their actions are really representative of of the seven who were called to serve earlier in Acts chapter 6. Third, Stephen was full of faith. He was full of faith. He he trusts God. This is certainly going to be evident as as he serves to be another example uh, of boldness in the face, uh, face of severe opposition. And then fourth, he was full of the Holy Spirit. Remember, as a Pentecost, all Christians were indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but we talked about how there's a, a, there could be a subsequent filling of the Holy Spirit upon Christians for specific times and for specific situations. And so you can recognize that, that from the fact that he's filled with the Spirit, you can recognize the fact that he's filled with the Spirit by each of these characteristics of his character. Stephen did not manufacture these character traits in himself. Each of them came through the work of the Holy Spirit in his heart. And really, that's really one of the, the key themes of the book of Acts, the, the ongoing ministry of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit within initially the apostles and then out, out into the church. So through the Holy Spirit, Stephen reflects Christ right to the end. Brothers and sisters, you also can be confident that when you need the Holy Spirit, now you need the Holy Spirit all the time, but when you are conscious of your need for the Holy Spirit, you can be confident that he will be there filling you with the strength that you need to accomplish what you could never accomplish on your own. Not just in the face of of persecution, but in every trial and temptation. You know, just this past week, I was able to, to go down to Vancouver to spend time with, with the Mareuses and, and the Lewises, and they, they both testified of, of God's grace in, in the midst of, of this trial that they're experiencing. 
They, they both testified of, of God working, working in them in, in ways that, that, that they, they, they could not have done themselves. I know that many of us here can testify the same thing. When you respond to a situation in a way that's just like, well, how did I do that? That's God. That's the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit who, who filled the apostles, and now we see filled Stephen to bear witness for Jesus Christ. He can do the same thing in you. So in verse 9, we see where the opposition came from. The, the synagogue of the freedmen. The synagogue included Hellenist, Hellenist Jews from, from several regions. So remember, we, we looked at last week how there was division between the, the Hellenist Christians and the, the, and the Jewish Christians, those who, who spoke Greek, who had come from their diaspora, that, that had come from outside of Jews who had, um, from the dispersion, who had gone come back to Jerusalem from outside of Israel versus those who were, were ethnically Jewish. Well, now the division is not with Hellenist Christians, but a Hellenist synagogue. And remember, Stephen himself is a Hellenist. Stephen is a Greek name. He very likely had been a part of this synagogue. And now they turned on him because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's another individual who's like a likely member of this synagogue, Saul of Tarsus. You see, Tarsus is part of Cilicia. It's one of the regions that, list, that is listed as represented, as represented in the synagogue. And so, Saul's involvement in what happens to Stephen, recorded in Acts 7, 15 and following, is, is I think, a clear confirmation that, that, that Stephen was part of this, this synagogue that united in its attack against Stephen. The men of this synagogue rose up and disputed with Stephen. This, this is the first time that the opposition is initiated, not from the religious leadership, but at a, at a grassroots level, it's initiated by the people. They took issue with what Stephen was teaching. As we'd seen previously in Acts, we, we were told that he did wonders and signs, and, we're, and we've seen in Acts that the wonders and signs were, were not ever meant to be ends in and of themselves. They led to the proclamation of Jesus Christ. And so now this witness for Christ is extended beyond the apostles, and the opposition goes beyond the apostles as well. The persecution is spread, spread from the apostles and now to others in the church. But as was also true with the apostles, that their opponents could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen was speaking. Spirit here refers to Holy Spirit. Later in Acts 7.51, Stephen will say to these men, you always resist the Holy Spirit. They resisted the Holy Spirit, but they could not withstand the Holy Spirit. They fought, but they couldn't win. They were not fighting with, with just a man. Stephen was empowered by the Holy Spirit, and was, so he was speaking with the wisdom of God. Jesus had warned the disciples about this opposition, but he also promised that help would come. He promised that God would help. Please turn with me in your Bible to Luke chapter 12, verses 11 and 12. 
And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should offend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And that was that promise was made to the disciples, but it's, it's really by application to all disciples. The Holy Spirit will give you the wisdom and the words. You don't have to come up with a plan and, and write an, an eloquent rhetoric-filled oratory. You can trust that the Holy Spirit will work in you and through you. And be confident that he might even work in the hearts of those to whom you are speaking. Now turn to Luke chapter 21. Here right at the end of, of Jesus' earthly ministry, just before his crucifixion, he warns the disciples again. He warns them about persecution, arrest, and trials. Now look, at, look at verse 13. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. So this persecution, this, this mistreatment, the, the enemies of God had a plan in that persecution and mistreatment. But God had a plan too. That these men, empowered by the Holy Spirit, would bear witness for Christ. We'll see this again throughout, throughout Acts as, as the Apostle Paul will, will even speak before the king and he will even, as we finish the book of Acts, he's, he's about to go and, and, and minister to, as he will, will bear testimony of Christ to, to Rome, to Caesar himself. Verse 15, Christ promised, I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. And so here we see this fulfilled in the witness and testimony of Stephen. Now friends, I know the temptation to defend yourself in the face of opposition or what you feel are the unjust accusations of others. But you need to recognize it for what it is. It's a temptation. It's a temptation to defend yourself. Listen, this is true whether the issue is, is directly regarding a spiritual matter or when someone is upset at you for something that you did or something that they think you did. In those moments, it's vital that you seek not to defend your cause, but Christ's cause. Is God sovereign? Is he not above the circumstances that you find so difficult? Where is God in the situation? In your heart and mind. We know where he is. But where is he in your heart and mind? Are you conscious of his presence? Are you conscious of his power? Are you conscious of his purposes for you in that moment? Now, I don't know about you, but, but I can get, get so bent out of joint that I'm not even thinking about God in that moment. In my mind, I'm thinking of something like, how dare you? You have no idea what you're talking about. Does this sound familiar? Maybe it's just me. What gives you the right to speak to me in that way? Where's Christ in that? 
Where's God in his glory? Like I said to the kids, in that moment, when I respond that way, I'm more thinking about my glory than Christ's glory. Again, this, this principle is true even if the opposition, opposition or accusation is not directly because of a spiritual issue. It is still your opportunity to bear witness for Christ. It's your opportunity to respond in a Christ-like way for the glory of Christ. You don't need to be defensive. You do not need to defend yourself. Now, I'm not saying that you should never correct false charges. Stephen will correct these false charges. But you do not have to rely on your own strength or your own power or your own testimony about yourself. You don't have to respond with your anything. Do not focus on the wrong that is done to you. Now, it might be legitimate. This might be a legitimate sin that the other person is committing against you. But I remember something that was just, I'm not saying I, I try to live by this, I fail, but, but what, what, what's the great, what's the, 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 um, the, the golden rule? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Whatever another person does or does not do, that's between them and God. You're not responsible for the actions of others, but you're responsible for your reactions to others. This isn't just about trying to, to get yourself together and, and, and have a stiff upper lip and just be silent. This is about relying on God and, and seeking God's face in that moment. Say, God, what do you want me to do here? How would you have me respond for your glory? As we see Stephen doing here. Again, do not focus on the wrong done to you. Rather, seek to glorify Christ in your response. And sometimes, again, this will mean correcting the charges as Stephen does, but it might mean saying nothing. Like Christ in Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that has led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. That's really hard. But by God's grace, it's impossible. It's actually impossible, but by God's grace. So how do you do this? How can you respond to opposition with a focus on glorifying Christ instead of seeking to glorify yourself? Well, remind yourself that there is another whose verdict matters more. There is a judge on the throne. His court is truly the supreme court. And it's not just the highest court in the land. It is the highest court in eternity. And if you are in Christ, remember that his verdict upon you isn't just not guilty. His verdict upon you is 100% righteous. Because of the imputed righteousness of Christ. And that is true. It does not cease to be true no matter what others say about you, but what others think about you, or about what others do to you. It is the the testimony and verdict of God Almighty that stands. No one can take that away from you, even if they throw you in jail or even if they kill you. 
But you might be thinking, well, but that family member, that coworker, that, that friend, that neighbor, or even that government official is just so stubborn, so malicious. It's not fair. If I don't defend myself, no one will. Again, I, I know some of how you feel. So again, how do you glorify Christ in the face of opposition? I know, again, I know personal weakness and I know the desire to defend myself, to vindicate myself, but I also know that God can provide strength to shine the light of Christ in word and deed in the face of opposition, in the face of any opposition. That's how Stephen did it. Find strength in the Lord. Look to Christ for the help you need. Pray before you speak. He will help you. The Holy Spirit will teach you what to say, and he'll help you if he wants you to say nothing. But maybe you can testify of times, times when, when something like this has happened, when, when, when you've been in a, in a discussion with somebody and, and it's gotten a, a, they've, they've gotten a little bit heated, or maybe very heated. Times when, when, when you weren't trying to win an argument. Times when, when you were truly seeking to glorify Christ. Can you think of times like that? Times when, when you spoke real biblical wisdom. Instead of your own ideas, the Bible came out of your mouth. And maybe you even responded in a way that's not typical of your personality. If you're, you're naturally confrontational, you, you spoke with gentleness. If you're naturally timid, you, you became bold. If you're naturally talkative, you spoke little. If that happens, this is very likely the word of the Lord, the work of the Lord. And you need to be thankful for what God has done because you didn't, you didn't generate that yourself. That's God doing it in you through the power of the Holy Spirit. Praise God that he is doing in you what you could never do yourself. You know, again, we, we look at stories, we look at, at situations like what happened to Stephen, we think, I could never do that. As I've said so many times, there's only one hero in the Bible. It's God. The, the message of this passage is not, is not just, just be like Stephen. It's be like Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. Glorify Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. These men could not withstand Stephen's wisdom as the Holy Spirit empowered him. So now they fought dirty. Verse 11. They secretly instigated men who said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They lied, manipulated, and perjured themselves to condemn Stephen. First, they accused Stephen of speaking blasphemy against God and, and breaking the Mosaic law. But as Stephen will demonstrate, it is they who are blaspheming God by denying the truth about what Stephen said and by lying about it instead. They had a radical misunderstanding of God and the scriptures so that they think the truth is a lie. Now maybe you've had this happen. Someone who does not understand the scriptures accuses you of being a false teacher for speaking about the sovereignty of God over salvation or some other biblical doctrine that they 
that they don't understand. And so in this case, they're, they're showing a radical misunderstanding of who God is and what Moses taught. Now we'll get into more detail about the nature of their charges in a moment, but they had another trick up their sleeve. And they went public. They incited others. It's a common tactic. If you feel someone has wronged you, you try to recruit others onto your team. That's quite often the motivation of gossip and slander. You're offended by someone, by what they said or did, and, and rather than going to them and to God, you go to others instead. And so these men stirred up the people and the elders and the Sanhedrin. Now, obviously, it was common knowledge how the Sanhedrin had responded to the apostles. So, so they think, oh, these guys are going to be powerful allies. But ultimately, it was Satan who was their ally. Satan loves discord, and Satan hates Christ. He's a powerful ally too, but he's the captain of the losing team. His power is nothing compared to God's power. His power is supremely limited in time and scope. And we're going to see how, maybe we're already starting to see how, how this persecution will cause the witness of Christ to spread. It'll spread among these men but also to regions beyond. So again, Satan had a plan in this, but ultimately it was God's sovereign plan that was being worked out in this for the glory of Christ. So the Sanhedrin now descended on Stephen and, and seized him. And the men of the synagogue brought forward their false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and against the law. We've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So now we get to, to the, the fuller picture of the charges against Stephen. This was no trial. It was mob justice. This was a kangaroo court complete with blind judges, false accusations, and false witnesses regarding the destruction of the temple. They'd done the same thing to Jesus Christ. They had their false witnesses then too, and with hauntingly similar charges. Again, the charges that they bring are, are that he was speaking against this holy place, that is against the temple, and against the law. It's the same charges that they made in verse 11. They're speaking, speaking blasphemy against God and against Moses, or more specifically, the Mosaic law. Now, as we'll see in Stephen's testimony in chapter 7, that nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. Stephen worshipped God and held him in the highest regard. And Stephen had a proper understanding of the law. Stephen in his testimony is going to demonstrate that it is the Jews who are attacking him and misunderstand the importance of the temple, that they are the lawbreakers, and that they are walking in the footsteps of those who rejected Moses and rejected all of God's messengers, culminating in the rejection of Jesus Christ. But as is so often true, these charges are, are framed in such a way to discredit Stephen and ultimately Jesus Christ. They, they are half-truths. They say specifically that they heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs Moses delivered to us. Now, Jesus did say in John 2.19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. 
And the Jews at that time challenged Jesus, saying, it's, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it up in three days? Well, Matthew and Mark record this specific charge being laid against Jesus by false witnesses just prior to his crucifixion. But John explains back in, in John 2.21 that he's speaking about the temple of his body. And that what, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So clearly it's, it's, it's a half-truth, a truth mixed with a lie taken out of context in an attempt to get Stephen condemned to death, just as they had done with Jesus Christ. So similarly, they accused Stephen of saying that, that Jesus came to change the laws that Moses gave them. That, that Jesus came to change the law. They did not understand that, that Jesus did, in a sense, change the law. But change here is, is not really the best word. Rather, Jesus came to show the, the full meaning of the Mosaic law. The reformers helpfully divided the, the Mosaic law into, into three components. Ceremonial, civil, and moral. Okay? The ceremonial law, the civil law, and the moral law. The, the ceremonial law included the, the sacrificial system, the, the, un, the cleanliness laws, the festivals, and so on. And, and Jesus changed the ceremonial law by fulfilling the ceremonial law, by, by, by being the one to whom all of those, those ceremonies and, 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 and laws pointed. It was really all about him. The sacrifices were about him. The feasts were about him. It all pointed to him. The, the civil law was the, the moral law that was codified for national Israel. But Jesus changed that law too by, by removing the, the national limitations. The, the, the civil law was set for, for Israel as an application of the moral law under a theocracy, a, a, a nation that was, was governed by God. Jesus removed the, the or showed that the, the boundaries were not geographical to, to, to his rule. It pointed to his, his spiritual kingdom, his, his, not his earthly kingdom, but his heavenly kingdom. And Jesus also fulfilled the moral law. He showed what the, the moral law was, was really all about. And it was far, far greater than the, than the, the system that the, uh, of legalistic rules and regulations that the, the Jews had. They completely misunderstood the law and the moral requirements of the law. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7, it is, it is the greatest sermon that's ever been preached. And it's, it's all really about how the, the Pharisees got the law wrong and how in the kingdom of God, this is, how, this is what God requires of us. Not to earn our salvation, but as those who have, have been saved. Matthew 5.17, near the beginning of the, of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So again, the, these, these, the men of, the, of this synagogue and of the Sanhedrin were, were, were leveling false accusations against Stephen, really leveling false accusations against Jesus Christ. 
But in so doing, they were saying a lot more about them than they were saying about Stephen or Christ. Then verse 15. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. That they, were, they were eyeballing him. They were, they, were, they were giving him the stink eye. Just staring at him. Staring him down. His face was like the face of an angel. We're going to see part of the contrast. We'll see this will really culminate in the, in the climax as they're, they're gnashing their teeth at him in a rage. And Stephen, in a beatific vision, sees Christ standing at the throne of God. They're full of, of murderous hatred of him. And what does Stephen do? He prays for them. So this is really a, a foretaste. We see the, the contrast between, between Stephen and these wicked men. He's got the, a face like an angel. Luke is really describing Stephen as, as looking like one who is in the presence of God. Like Moses when he came down from, from Mount Sinai and his face glowed because he'd been in the presence of God. He reflected God's glory. This testimony that God's seal is upon Stephen. No matter what others say about him, God's verdict upon Stephen is accepted and beloved. Stephen is serene because he knows who God is and he knows who he is in God. When people make false accusations against you and judge you, again, there's only one judge that really matters. Consider God's verdict on you. Consider who God is and consider who you are in God. And then you'll be free, like Stephen, to make this an opportunity to bear witness of Christ in word and in deed. Next week, Lord willing, we'll hear Stephen's witness of Christ in word as we hear his testimony. He is on trial for rejecting God and the law, but it is his accusers who are guilty. And so through the, the persecution of Stephen, the witness for Jesus Christ will grow and the church will grow. Through the witness of, of our witness in the face of, of persecution, in the face of trials, the testimony of Jesus Christ will grow through you and me as well. And so as Stephen preaches this sermon in Acts chapter 7, he's pointing these men who are about to kill him to their only hope and ours. The crucified and risen Savior. These were the same men who had killed Jesus and they're getting yet another opportunity to repent and come to faith. How merciful is that? Again, just think about our own lives and how, how often we condemn others and execute others in our hearts when our words for far, far less 
Whereas these men are getting another opportunity to repent. Again, what they do or do not do is between them and God. But for our sake, as those who have been purchased by Christ, let us seek to glorify Christ in these situations intentionally by the power of the Holy Spirit so that through us, Christ will be glorified. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, we bow in your majestic and holy presence. You are God incarnate. Lord, you are the only Savior. Lord, you who were mistreated and maligned by wicked men. You who died at the hands of your own creation. You died for sinners like us. We have received forgiveness in you. We have received new life in you. We have received a new verdict in you. The verdict upon us is righteous because, Lord Jesus, you are righteous. And as our sin was credited to you, your righteousness is credited to us. Help us, I pray, in the power of your Holy Spirit to be conscious of who you are and of who we are in you, that we might seek to glorify you in every and any circumstance that we face, especially in the face of trials and persecution, so that your glory would be maximized through us. Help us, I pray, to live for you. We can't do this. Forgive us for all of our selfishness. Forgive us for all of our self-righteousness. Help us, I pray. Strengthen us, I pray, to glorify your name. For we pray this in your holy name.